Chapter 10, The Crux of the Matter By now you're probably wondering, what in the world does this mean for me? After the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, people were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? Acts 2, verse 37. The first church responded with immediate action, repentance, baptism, selling possessions, sharing the gospel. We respond with words like, Amen, convicting sermon, great book. And then are paralyzed as we try to decipher what God wants of our lives. I concur with Annie Dillard, who once said, How we live our days is how we live our lives. We each need to discover for ourselves how to live this day in faithful surrender to God as we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Should you put your house on the market today and downsize? Maybe. Should you quit your job? Maybe. Or perhaps God wants you to work harder at your job and be his witness there. Does he want you to move to another city or another country? Maybe. Perhaps he wants you to stay put and open your eyes to the needs of your neighbors. Honestly, it's hard enough for me to discern how God wants me to live my own life. My suggestion as you think, make decisions, and discern how God would have you live life is to ask yourself, is this the most loving way to do life? Am I loving my neighbor and my God by living where I live, by driving what I drive, by talking how I talk? I urge you to consider and actually live as though each person you come into contact with is Christ. Asking and reflecting on these sorts of questions points us in the right direction. But we have to get beyond asking the right questions. We often have aha moments, but don't act. In fact, we're famous for it in the church. Remember those retreat highs followed by the inevitable lull? Or the excitement you felt on your first mission trip but forgot shortly after returning home? Memories are wonderful but do you live differently because of them? The stories in chapter 9 are brief snapshots of how a few people have lived out true Christianity in America and around the world. Their lives are a challenge of the status quo and examples of a different way to live. The point is, is that there is another path, an alternative to the individualism, selfishness, and materialism of the American dream even the so-called Christian version. I hope their stories reminded you that God works in a vast number of ways and that he has more in store for you than you can really imagine right now. A Nike commercial ran years ago featuring the first draft pick into the NBA, Harold Miner. In the commercial, he said something like this, Some people ask if I'm going to be the next Magic Johnson or the next Larry Bird I tell them, I'm going to be the first Harold Miner. He ended up having a miserable career in the NBA, but it was still a pretty cool commercial. And his point, to be yourself, was valid. Oswald Chambers wrote, Never make a principle out of your experience. Let God be as original with others as he is with you. To that I would add, be careful not to turn others' lives into the mold for your own. Allow God to be as creative with you as he is with each of us.
Have you ever said, I was made for this moment? Do you believe you were crafted for specific good works, things that God knew before you even existed? Or do you compare your life to others and lament what you've been given? We have a God who is a creator, not a duplicator. He's never made a Francis Chan before. Paul tells us, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 Imagine if you opened up a drawer in your kitchen and found 20 cheese graters, but no other utensils. Not very helpful when you're looking for something to eat your soup with. Just as there are different utensils in the kitchen that serve diverse functions, God has created unique people to accomplish a variety of purposes throughout the world. That is why I cannot say in this book, everyone is supposed to be a missionary, or you need to sell your car and start taking public transportation. What I can say is that you must learn to listen to and obey God especially in a society where it's easy and expected to do what is most comfortable. I wrote this book because much of our talk doesn't match our lives. We say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and trust in the Lord with all your heart. Then we live and plan like we don't believe God even exists. We try to set up our lives so everything will be fine even if God doesn't come through. But true faith means holding nothing back. It means putting every hope in God's fidelity to his promises. A friend of mine once said that Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow better, but keep them in one big pile and they stink horribly. Which are you? The kind that reeks, around which people walk a wide swath? Or the kind that trusts God enough to let him spread you out? Well, that means going outside of your normal group of Christian friends, increasing your material giving, or using your time to serve others. I was convicted by my lack of faith in college. I realized that my choices had situated me in a pile of stinking manure, and this motivated me to put myself in uncomfortable situations. I began going to downtown Los Angeles to share my faith. I didn't hear God calling me to drive downtown. I just chose to go. I obeyed. Most of us use, I'm waiting for God to reveal his calling on my life as a means of avoiding action. Did you hear God calling you to sit in front of the television yesterday or to go on your last vacation or to exercise this morning? Probably not, but you still did it. The point isn't that vacations or exercise are wrong but that we are quick to rationalize our entertainment and priorities, yet we're slow to commit to serving God. A friend of mine was speaking recently. Afterward, a guy came up and told him, I would go serve God as a missionary overseas, but honestly, if I went right now, it would only be out of obedience. My friend's response was, yes, and? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command, John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus did not say, if you love me, you will obey me when you feel called or good about doing so. If we love, then we obey, period. 
This sort of matter-of-fact obedience is part of what it means to live a life of faith. The greatest blessing I received during those trips to the inner city was seeing God work in situations where He has to. As a result, I've made it a commitment to consistently put myself in situations that scare me and require God to come through. When I survey my life, I realize that those times have been the most meaningful and satisfying of my life. They were the times when I truly experienced life in God. For so much of my life, I didn't understand the desirability of God or trust in His love enough to submit my hopes and dreams. I lived in a constant state of trying to be devoted enough to Him, yet I never quite made it. I knew God wanted all of me, yet I feared what complete surrender to Him would mean. Trying harder doesn't work for me. Slowly, I've learned to pray for God's help, and He has become my greatest love and desire. Despite this huge shift in focus and tone in my relationship with God, I still struggle to stay focused on Jesus every day. But a couple of things keep me going. First, I remember that if I stop pursuing Christ, I am letting our relationship deteriorate. We never grow closer to God when we just live life. It takes deliberate pursuit and attentiveness. When I pray, I sometimes ask God to make it the most intimate time of prayer I've ever had. Many times when I speak, whether at my church or another venue, I remind myself that I could die right after I finish, so what would I want my last words to be? Second, I remember that we're not alone. Even now, there are thousands of beings in heaven watching what is going on down here. A great cloud of witnesses, the scripture says. It reminds me that there is so much more to our existence than what we can see. What we do reverberates throughout the heavens and into eternity. Try for a whole day to be conscious of heaven. Realize that so much is going on outside of this dimension in our existence. God and His angels are watching even now. What really keeps me going is the gift and power we've been given in the Holy Spirit. Before Christ left this earth, He told His disciples, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. John 16, verses 7 and 8 and 13. The disciples must have been shocked by the idea that it was for their good that Jesus was leaving. What could possibly be better than having Jesus by your side? Wouldn't you rather have Jesus physically walking next to you all day than have the seemingly elusive Holy Spirit living in you? Our view of the Holy Spirit is too small. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes the church. But we have to remember that the Holy Spirit lives in us. It is individual people living spirit-filled lives that will change the church. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. If you look at the Greek, it's written both as a present imperative, a continual command, and in the passive voice. 
The imperative part means that being filled with the Spirit isn't something that we do once, rather it's something we do always and repeatedly. And the passive element communicates God's necessary action to the process of filling. I have never been more excited about the church. I think there's tremendous reason to expect good things. At the beginning of this chapter, I mentioned how Annie Dillard wrote that the way that we live our days is the way we live our lives. It's similar with the body of Christ. How we believers live out our lives is a microcosm of the life of the church. My hope and prayer is that you finish this book with hope, believing that part of your responsibility in the body of Christ is to help set the pace for the church by listening and obeying the living Christ, knowing that God has called us each to live faithful and devoted lives before Him by the power of His Spirit. You do not need to preach to your pastor or congregation. You simply need to live out in your daily life the love and obedience that God has asked of you. I was recently told about a man who heard me preach on 1 Corinthians 15, 19-20, where Paul writes, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This man was convicted that since Christ is indeed alive, he needed to live like it. So he quit his well-paying job and became a pastor, something he had felt called to do for a while. When people make changes in their lives like this, it carries greater impact than when they merely make impassioned declarations. The world needs Christians who don't tolerate the complacency of their own lives. Is this what I want to be doing when Christ comes back? And so we're at the end of this book. I don't think it's coincidence that God has encouraged my heart so much over this past week with the story of the three believers who were martyred in Turkey. I'm writing this in April of 2007, and the news about the three martyrs, Tillman, Nikadi, and Uger, is still fresh. I can't get them out of my mind. They were tortured for three hours in ways that I didn't know were humanly possible. I'll spare you the details, but as repulsive and horrific. I think of how they must have looked at each other while being tortured with stares that said, just hold on a little longer. Don't deny him. It'll all be worth it. It's been about a week and a half since their deaths. How thrilled they must be right now. I cannot imagine the joy they felt just five seconds after their deaths. I know that when I meet them, they'll say it was so worth it. A hundred or a thousand or a million years from now, they'll still say it was so incredibly worth it. Stories about faithful saints like our brothers killed in Turkey are what we will talk about in heaven. The Bible is clear that each of us will stand before God and account for our lives. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. 
Jeremiah 32:18-19. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. What will people say about your life in heaven? Will people speak of God's work and glory through you? And even more important, how will you answer the king when he says, What did you do with what I gave you? Daniel Webster once said, The greatest thought that has ever entered my mind is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of my life. He was right. Now turn this audio off. Get on your knees before our holy, loving God. And then live the life with your friends, your family, parents, spouse, children, neighbors, enemies, and strangers that he has created and empowered you through the Holy Spirit to live. May you be able to say at the end of your life, along with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7-8. through 8.